0: The, this, the human race and how desperately, within the very family of Jesus, the human race needs the Son of God, and it speaks of God's sovereign rule in the midst of brokenness, and how he cares not, and moves not only through brokenness, but through women in his story, and it speaks to us of the reason why Jesus had to come, that his own family tree had to be redeemed and be brought into the beauty of the gospel and so that's what we're going to look at as Jesus' background each week highlighting some aspect of the the gospel by we look at Jesus' sordid family background and so in this genealogy reminded of the reason why we celebrate the birth of the son of God why he had to come and so this morning we look at the story of Tamar so if you turn your bibles to Genesis 38 if you have a bible or it'll be up here on the screen for you it's a lengthy passage so bear with me here here we go it happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose, woman, whose, whose name was Hira. And then Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, and he took her and went into her. By the way, this is gonna, that kind of language is going to be smattered throughout this. And so uh, plug your kids' ears if you don't want them to hear. And she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name, <coughs> excuse me for coughing, Ur. She conceived again and bore another son, she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chezeb when she bore him, and Judah took a wife for for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die just like his brothers. And so Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, she daughter, died. And when Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, and he and his friends hired the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and she sat at the entrance to Anaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown, and she had not been given to him in marriage, And when Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, come, let me come into you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, what will you give me that you may come into me? And he answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, if you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, what pledge shall I give to you? She replied, your signet ring and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. And so he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. And then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was at Enaim at the roadside? And they said, no cult, cult prostitute has been here. And so he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own, or we should be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. Well, about three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. And as she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. And then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her my son, Shelah. And he did not know her again. And when the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, What a breach you have made for her- yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. And after his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zarah. I believe the only appropriate response for all of God's people is to say the Michael Scott face. Um, (laughs) Once again, you thought your family was screwed up. This passage has actually been so startling to commentators throughout the years that people have wondered, what in the world is this passage doing in the Bible? Here we are, saunting along in the book of Genesis. We've introduced ourselves, to have been introduced to Joseph, and we love Joseph. He has the, the coat of many colors. Joseph is going to be moral and upstanding, and yet for some reason, the book writer of Genesis, Moses, pauses right here to tell us of this ridiculous, sordid, seedy, literally, story. And so what in the world is this here for? Why is the story here? And what does he want his, pastor, his, his readers to know? i are gonna jump right into it. This story tells us three things, three things this morning. I'm gonna give all three of you them to you because I'm not gonna highlight them too much as we move through because it's a narrative and I wanna move through it like that. But the three, the three things this story tells us is first, the profound injustice in Judah's wickedness. Second, the prophetic exposure through Tamar's entrapment. And third, the gracious breakthrough in God's declarations. The profound injustice in Judah's wickedness, the prophetic exposure through Chamar's entrapment, and lastly, the gracious breakthrough in God's declaration. We begin with the the wickedness of Judah. The story is set in the context of Genesis. If you remember Genesis, God has called to himself graciously a family, the family of Abraham, to be, be his people and to be a blessing to the whole world. Well, Abraham had a son, and his son's name was Isaac, and Isaac then had two sons, Esau and Jacob. Remember Esau and Jacob. We'll come back to them at the end of this this sermon. And then Jacob, the blessing runs not through Esau, but through Jacob, and Jacob then has 12 boys. Now, things in this family uh, with 12 boys was going like you'd expect a family to go with 12 boys. Uh, They were from four different women, uh, Leah and Rachel, and two concubines of Leah and Rachel. And Rachel is the favored wife, and so her children, her sons, Benjamin and Joseph, are the favored ones. Joseph um, is a little prima donna. He likes to have dreams and share those dreams with his brothers. And he is the favored one by his father, and he gets a coat of many colors. He gets all the best Christmas presents. This was seen in this story is known from Genesis chapter 37. And the boys are not happy about this, the rest of the boys in the family. And so they decide to get rid of Joseph. And so they sell him into slavery, and they take his colorful coat, and they smear blood on it, and then go back and tell Jacob that his son, his favored son, has been ripped to pieces by a wild animal. And the leader of the brothers, the one who concocted this plan and lied to their father, was none other than a guy named Judah. Beginning in Genesis 37, the story of Genesis seems to be now beginning to run through Joseph, he appears to be like he's going to be the blessed one. And it picks up right where it leaves off at the end of 37, right at the beginning of chapter 39. And yet in 38, we get a more in-depth look, though, at Judah. The first thing we see about Judah is that in, verse, in chapter 38 is that he marries a Canaanite woman. This is a no bueno activity for good Israelite boys. He marries an idol-worshiping family. He bears three sons, and by no means are these three sons paragons of morality and virtue. It actually says that they're evil. He is a failure as a father. First of these sons, Ur, marries Tamar, another Canaanite girl. But the wickedness of Ur is so bad that this is the first person in the Bible that it's explicitly said God purposely and specifically takes his life. That must be pretty evil. Judah then gives Tamar to his second son, Onan. Now this is giving, to understand this, we have to understand the practices of that day. There's something called Leverite marriage. It meant if the husband died without an heir, the husband's brother was to marry the widow and produce an heir by his name so that he would receive the inheritance of the older brother. And if the brother, that brother wasn't able to do this, sometimes even the father would step up into this role. Now, this sounds very bizarre to us and to our modern ears, but in the patriarchal society back then, this custom was actually meant as a purpose of justice and care for women. You see, Tamar is probably 15 years old when she's given to Ur as her husband, and so let's say she's now 17 when Onan has died as well. And to an unmarried woman of that time, there are no employment options, there is no government support. Once, Usually once you've left your family and go into, gone into one family for, through marriage, they are supposed to be your livelihood for the rest of your life, and you're supposed to have children who would then be raised to take care of you when you're old. And this practice is of levirate right, marriage in order to ensure that a woman has an heir and children who will provide for her and care for her and establish her in the system of the family is so important in that culture that God actually establishes it in Deuteronomy within the Israelite nation and system. So Onan is supposed to impregnate her so that she will have children and have a family and be cared for, but he refuses. He is perfectly willing to participate in the pleasure of sexual activity, but he is not willing to take up the responsibilities of sexual activity. Does that sound stunningly familiar? He is, he engages in what we might call coitus interruptus, in order to put it in a uh, more euphemistic way. Now, I certainly don't desire to linger at the scene any longer than we have to, but you have to see the profound wretchedness of, of Onan and what he is doing here. He is destroying Tamar's reputation. She has already had one husband who she could not get pregnant by, and now he is going into her tent, and then what will be thought of her by everybody else around them is that Tamar is damaged goods, that in a world in which the greatest value that women have is to be able to produce children, he, he is acting in such a way that it makes it seem publicly that she is no longer able to do this. And so we return to Judah. Judah decides that he will not give up his third son to Tamar because God took out Onan as well. And so he won't give his third son to Tamar. Judah's thinking, listen, Tamar, she couldn't get pregnant by son number one. She couldn't get pregnant by some number two, and they both have died. She's kind of a black widow. You don't want to have anybody around her. And so he has no intention of doing the just and right thing and keeping covenant with Tamar and giving her his third child. Well, it becomes obvious to Tamar that Judah will not carry out his responsibilities, and so it, the, the, it gets even more ridiculous. Tamar decides to come up with a plan. She knows that Judah, whose wife has recently died, Um, has proclivities and that he has certain needs that he's going to seek to be met. Now, notice here between Judah and Tamar. Tamar is still wearing her widow's outfit. Judah is required to maybe grieve for a week. Here she's potentially years later, and she's still faithful to the family of Judah. Judah's made it about a week. And then he needs to have his needs met. And so she knows that there's a sheep shearing festival coming up. And um, that's kind of like, the you know, you go and you shear your sheep and then you sell it. And then you get, you, that's when you get drunk and liquored up and everything. It's a great festival uh, for dudes to go hang out at. And so she disguises herself as, as a prostitute and puts herself in a place where um, she would find him. And, and um, sure enough, Judah avails himself of her services. He has now understand she has nothing to he has nothing to compensate her with. And so she comes up with this deal. She says, Leave your staff and your cord and your ring. These are the identifications for a, a man of wealth and honor. This is like leaving your driver's license and your credit card and your social security number with somebody and saying, I, I'll make good on my promise to give you a goat. And then Judah went on his merry way. Well, a couple of months later, Tamar is found to be pregnant. And lo and behold, Judah is really furious about this. When Judah finds out, he declares that not only must she be put to death, but she must be burned. Now, that was not the usual form of execution back then. This was a hateful, vengeful way of carrying out an execution. In other words, he hates her because of her infidelity, as he sees it, to his family. And so as she's being dragged out to be executed for her family, for her infidelity to Judah's family. Now we will pause right there. She is on the way to being killed. And I ask you, what is the purpose of this story? What would be the glaring loud proclamation that the writer of Genesis is trying to tell you? It's this, that Judah and his family line are complete and utter scum. Judah is scum. Everybody else who comes from Judah is scum. This is a broken line. Cut it off. Get rid of it. Let's be done. He enslaves his younger brother. He lies to his father with a gruesome story of his brother's demise. He marries a pagan, has evil kids, refuses to step up, just lives for his own pleasure, flippantly moves through life, caring nothing for justice and goodness, but simply for the banal desires of his own heart and life. If he does evil, he doesn't even do it for any great reason. He just does it for his own carnal desires. Now, real quick, commentators ask why Genesis 38 is even here because Genesis appears to be an interruption to the Joseph story and and, and what we see here is what is being put up by the the writer of Genesis is he is comparing Joseph and Judah. Judah is the foil in the literature. He is the anti-Joseph. Joseph lives a life of moral integrity. The very next passage, Joseph is going to be propositioned by a woman of power over him, and he's going to flee the scene because he so has such integrity. Judah lives a life of banal selfishness and wickedness with moments of complete and utter, utter cynical evil. And his evil, his evil just carries on and on and on. He has to be one of the most loathsome characters in all the Bible up to this point. And so the reader has to say, why don't we just focus on Joseph? Let's leave the rest of this gross rabble behind, the rest of the brothers, and let's stick with this with the good branch. Cut off the bad branch and let's move on. But the passage rises up with the stench of human moral excrement crying out that Judah is a scumbag, a pathetic and banal evil man sniveling, perpetrating an act of utter injustice against a defenseless woman. The narrative wants the reader to rise up and go, this guy disgusts me. He is unjust and he's wicked. He's evil. And someone has to do something about it. But do you see who Judah is? Judah is part of the people of God. Here it is, Tamar, the Gentile. Tamar, the Gentile, and Judah, the man from the people of God. Do you see the hypocritical? We're going to just pause and apply for just a second. Do you see the hypocrisy of self-righteousness in Judah? It's unbelievable to be this evil, and then when he sees what he believes to be immorality in his daughter-in-law, what's he say? Burn her! Burn her! Immediately, the utter hypocrisy and double standard here, how can Judah declare that Tamar is so horrible when you look at his life? Self-righteousness makes you so blind to your own sin. And when you're blind to your own sin, self-righteousness then also makes you think that you're just simply better than other people. Judah thinks it's crazy, but he thinks he's better than Tamar. Who do you think you're better than? What's the banal evil and injustice that you're willing just to go along with in this world because it serves your interests? It's a call to the God's people in all generations. Do you smell yourself? Do you see the evil, the simplicity of it, the sensuousness of it, the injustice of his evil? That's the stark point that's being made here. Second point. The prophetic exposure of Tamar's entrapment. Okay, where where were we? Oh yeah, Judah finds out that Tamar is pregnant. And so he says, burn her. Judah's up on his mighty horse in his vengeance. And Tamar's being led out to her horrific execution. When she sends back the signet ring and the staff, and she says to Judah, you wouldn't happen to recognize these, would you? She's saying that if her crime is guilty and worthy of burning... Then who else should be burned along with her? How do evil men engage in the utter blindness and delusion of their self-righteousness come to smell their own stink? They have to be exposed. Like a dog, their nose has to be put into it. Now listen, girls, I don't think the Bible is saying you should emulate Tamar. Tamar. You could not be more guilty than Tamar is here. Sexual entrapment is not one of the fruits of the Spirit, last I checked. She engaged in this, she is pregnant, and she is guilty. And yet the Bible takes no time, no time whatsoever to focus on her. But it takes great pains to reveal the guilty one here, and that is Judah. And Judah himself will say that he is more unrighteous than she is. And God is willing to use Tamar and the mess that she creates... But he uses her, her role here is as a prophetic voice to point out and before the whole world, Judah's evil and injustice. She exposes Judah's indifference to her plight. She exposes Judah's Judah's unwillingness to care for her. She exposes the horrific double standard of the day. Me Too did not begin in 2021 or whenever it began, 2014. It was here, And she's exposing the injustice that he can have relations with whomever and whenever and wherever he wants. And if she's caught, burn her. Tamar is saying, you wouldn't be able to recognize yourself, would you? Because it is you. You are the man. In other words, she's the prophet, just like Nathan is the prophet for David. Remember, we're gonna learn about this later with Bathsheba. When David sins with Bathsheba, Takes her to her himself. He has Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, killed. There's Nathan the prophet. And he comes and gives David a parable. And he talks about this family that had one little lamb. One, it was their pet in there. They slept with the lamb. They loved the lamb. And then there was the rich guy next door. And he had all the sheep in the world. And yet he takes the lamb from this family and kills it for his dinner. And David rises up and he goes, this is immoral. This is unjust. Such things should not happen. And then Nathan looks at him and says, you are the man. And that is the exact role that Tamar is playing here. So, church, people of God, how do we smell our own stink? How do we come to see the truth about ourselves? What must happen? For self-righteous people to be broken over their sinfulness, the grace of God must point the finger at us and say to us, you need to recognize yourself in the mirror. When grace breaks through and justice is exposed, and the wicked have their eyes opened. When proud, self-righteous people begin to see that they are the biggest sinner in their home and in their church, we can know that grace has begun to break through. God is beginning to move and work. We often won't look to God for forgiveness, forgiveness. And so we look to the flaws of other people to make ourselves feel better. It's deeply ingrained in us to be over and hypercritical people in our self-righteousness rather than see the truth about ourselves. This is who we are. This is our proclivity, even as the people of God. This is our heritage. You might say, listen, Pastor, it's Advent. I want to hear how much God loves me. And he does love you. And he loves you enough to tell you the truth about yourself. It is the greatest thing to know the truth about yourself. Listen, if, if your wife is in pain, serious abdominal pain, agonizing, and you take her to the doctor, are you hopeful for him to say, oh, we can't find it? We don't know what's going on? No. Knowing the truth in that moment, to, even if the problem is bad, you go, I, at least, we at least know what the issue is. And do you, so will you, you know, do you know the issue with your life? Are you willing to be exposed? Spiritually, when your life is on a trajectory towards hell, when life is a shambles, when it's destroying you and your family, then grace, the grace to you in that moment is to have your eyes opened by the exposure of God. You see, what the self-righteous person needs, the only thing that will save us is the grace of God to intervene and reveal to us our sinfulness in such a way that we see us as we truly are. And this, understand this, this is profoundly painful, is it not? This is profoundly painful. And God often uses some of the most painful things to reveal to us the appalling nature of our sin. It's a book I read a number of years ago by a guy named Matthew Elliott. It's a book entitled Feel. He tells the story of a man who was a leader in his church and in his community, a pastor. And um, he was well-respected, but this man was leading a double life. He had a secret sin. He was addicted, wildly so, to pornography. And one night, while surfing the internet, looking at unspeakable thing after unspeakable thing, he became, came across a video that could be described as nothing less than an orgy. And as he was watching the video, suddenly one man looked straight up, almost making, seemingly making eye contact with the camera. And he was stunned to find it was his own son. The jolt this man experienced was unbearable. It was painful, it was crushing, but after living years of a secret life, his own child essentially looked him in the eye and exposed who he had become. And by the grace of the Lord, he confessed his sin and he actually began a dialogue between him and his son who had become estranged and it led to true repentance in his life for the first time. It is so painful to be exposed by God, but it is a good pain. It is the pain that brings you to life. Have you seen yourself? Have you recognized your sin? The path of repentance requires it. It is interesting, in being confronted, Judah does change. He does change. One, he declares that Tamar is more righteous than him. And then, you know, when, in, the, in the story of Genesis, as, as God uses Judah to become the one who will lead the rest of Jacob's family into reconciliation with Joseph, and therefore sparing the family, God brings about radical change in Judah's life, but it began with being exposed, being exposed. Now, out of the scene from this biblical Jerry Springer show, you are the father. He is, the chef shows it. This breaking out of this daytime TV scene comes the gracious declarations of God. And you're kind of going, listen, you read that whole passage. I saw no gracious declarations. I mean, there there wasn't much good. I want to tell you what the two of them are. Here's the two gracious declarations of God. The first is this. Judah is the covenant line of blessing. Judah is the covenant line of blessing. There's a question that would have been important to the early readers in Israel. They're asking the question, okay, we had Abraham, and then we had Isaac, and then we had Jacob and Esau, and God chose Jacob, and that's who the line of blessing is coming through. And now there's 12 to choose from. Who's the blessing that God is going to bring his covenant promises through? So we find, is, is it Judah? Is it Jacob? I mean, is it Joseph? Is wh- Benjamin? Which of these guys is it? Now, th- now this, understand this. This is some serious inside baseball, so stick with me here. Understand that the narratives don't always come and say things blatantly and clearly. You have to read the details and deduce the writer's intentions. And at the end of the passage, the very last verses, what does it highlight? It highlights this. That there is this detail about this birth where Tamar gives birth where the first son sticks his hands out, and so they indicate that he's the firstborn son, and so the midwife quickly ties a scarlet thread around his finger, but then the second son, Perez, makes an inner in-utero juke move, apparently, and breaks through first. Think about it. Jacob and Esau were twins. Judah now has twins, Zerah and Perez. In the case of Esau and Jacob, Esau was the older, but it says that he would serve the younger and Jacob between the line of blessing. In the case of Zerah and Perez, Zera is the older. He got that finger out to cross the finish line. But now there is important that we see that the younger has now come out first and he will receive the double portion. He will get the blessing. He gets everything. Zerah is the firstborn, but then, man, Here comes Perez breaking through at the last second. But there's more. Esau is called the father of Edom. And Esau, or Edom means red. After the red stew that Esau took instead of his birthright. Well, what do we read about about, uh, Perez's brother? His older brother's name is Zerah, which literally means red. And he has a red thread put on his finger. There's more. How did Jacob get the blessing and become the, the blessed line, the family? How did he do that? Through a disguise. How does Jake or J- Judah get a son of blessing? Through Tamar's disguise. There's more. What's an issue that the mothers of the blessed, uh, blessed line seem to have? Sarah, Rachel, they struggle to get pregnant. And here's Tamar, who appears to not be able to get pregnant and suddenly is pregnant. We are supposed to see that what happened to Jacob is now happening to Judah's family. In other words, what Genesis is showing us, and the writer, author Moses, is saying, is what Jacob is—it was in the last chapters of Genesis. He will now his blessing, and the covenant promises of God will now move through Judah. Moses is saying, "Ah, look, the blessing of God is coming through Judah. What grace, what abundant mercy!" Now, after all that inside baseball, here's the point I need you to see: the sleazeball brother gets the blessing. Joseph gets a blessing, but he doesn't become the line of blessing. The covenant line of blessing, all of God's promises flow through the line of Judah. That is stunning that the brother who's the biggest failure and the biggest screw up and appears to have the worst kids, God says, through him, I'll bring my promises. In other words, Moses is writing to the people of God and saying, people of God, this is who you are. Israel, don't get high on yourself. This is the best you can do. God chose the Judas, and he chose you, not because you were lovely and beautiful and moral and righteous. He chose you simply out of his grace and mercy, and so you, the people of God, I say the same thing to you. This is your heritage. This is your lineage. And we are the screw-ups and the failures and you were called into his family not because you were moral and righteous and beautiful or better than other people but simply because God set his love and his affection and extended his grace and mercy to you you're like wow that's that's a lot out of a birth announcement but that is the truth but how can Judas the Judas of the world and the Tamar's of the world be the line of blessing they have so much guilt they're so wicked that's the second thing. God's second declaration is this the Tamars of the world are righteous. He says it in verse 23, it comes out of the mouth of Judah, She is more righteous than me. Now, why in the world is Tamar in the line of Christ? Because she experienced what you and I experience. She's in the line of Christ for the same reason that you and I get to be in the line of Christ. She's just up further up river, we're down river. She was guilty. She was guilty as she could be. I mean, when you're pregnant, you don't really have a whole... It's like, I'm not guilty. And you're like, I I don't know. There's some pretty hard evidence here. It's rather self-indicting. But Judah looks at her and says, she is righteous. How could she be declared righteous? Because in the perverseness of the system, only Judah had the right to remove her guilt. Only Judah could remove her condemnation and her punishment. Now, if it was a just system, Judah would have declared her right and he would have taken her punishment. But he doesn't do that. But here's the thing there is one who will come, who will declare sinners like Tamar and the sinners like Judah, and he says, I will declare you righteous. But he's just in doing so because he takes on the burning that we deserve. Because only one can remove our punishment and our condemnation. God has the right to declare us guilty and to condemn us. But in his love and in his grace and in his justice, what does he do? He sends his son. The son in the line of Judah. Judah's great, 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 lots of greats. Grandson enters into this world and he takes the blame to carry her sin and Judah's sin and my sin. And he took the condemnation on himself. And he would look at your life and your sin and your corruption, and he would look at you and he would say, I know the things. And I declare to you that you are righteous. You are righteous. He is righteous, and she is righteous because instead of being burned, Jesus says, I will be burned. It says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake, Jesus, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Did you hear that? It is stunning. Jesus became sin. Became sin. He took all the things that you have done and all the things that have been done to you. That's an astounding statement. He became Judah the seller of his brother and the liar to his father, the terrible father and the abuser of the weak and the wickedly unjust. He took those sins. He took Tamar and he entered a family of incest and got so low so that he might declare us righteous. And what is the name of that son of Judah? His name is Jesus. But he also has another name. He also goes by the name of the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And he is the one who is the truly righteous lion. He is the one through whom all the promises of the Old and the New Testament will come true. And he is the one who bears our responsibility of our sin so that he might declare us righteous. Then adopting us, making it possible for you and I, to be adopted into the family of God so that he might put us in his family tree, declaring us to be along with him, to be children of blessing. That's who you are. You're children of blessing, a children of a heritage, just like Perez. This is the wondrous grace of God breaking through. Isn't God's story beautiful? Beautiful. Isn't it amazing that he invites you into his family and to sit at his table? Let's go there now. Let's pray. <coughs> those who are serving would come forward and sit on the front row as well as those who are musicians. Oh, Heavenly Father, um, you are, it is, it is amazing, even just look at your literature how in even the most NC-17 episodes in the scriptures, you just pour out grace and pour out the beauty of your redemptive power. Lord, it's stunning. And so, Heavenly Father, I thank you that you call broken children, you call people out of a broken family line into the family line of God. And you engraft us into your household. And you make us children of blessing. And so, Lord, we come and we set aside this simple bread and this simple cup to remember what you have done for us. That Jesus' body was broken and his blood was shed so that we might come into your family. So that we might be cleansed and declared right and declared sons and daughters. So we set aside this, this bread and this cup. Lord, would your spirit move through the people of faith, the people who cling to you, not of their own righteousness, but of your righteousness. May your spirit give us grace, the grace to be a blessing to this world, the grace to believe that we really are part of the family of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.